some of my students and former student. Uh, some have graduated this past Thursday evening and others are now seniors, which I don't think that's sunk in, hasn't with me as well. I want to call them juniors, but they're not. But I'm glad they are here today and I'm glad you are as well. What I'd like to do over the next four weeks or so is to focus on our marriage and families. And it is something that has really been burdening my heart for over a year now uh, when uh, the elders, we went on a retreat last um, summer. Uh, I expressed uh, my concern to spend some time looking at our roles as husband, wife, children. And families are the backbones of our society and more importantly our church. Healthy families make for healthy churches. Godly husbands and godly wives seek to raise godly children. And I want you to understand that no matter where you're at, what stage of life you're in, if you're a young adult, uh, if you've been married for a long time, if you are even divorced or single or whatever it may be, these things are imperative for us to know. To know what we should be as men, as women. Uh, and even if we're not married, it helps us to guide those who are. It gives wisdom uh, to those who are to follow. We need to know what we are commanded to be. Uh, young people need to know what to look for in a spouse. Satan and this world's system has sought to destroy the family, to twist what the husband and the wife are to be. I am convinced that most people who get married today know very little about biblical love and what the ultimate purpose of marriage is. When we are young, and in my case sometimes a little stupid, uh, we see marriages around us and we've seen their struggles. I saw my mom and dad, I saw other relationships, but our thoughts many times is that we're going to do things different than the people that have been our example. We have real love and things are going to be different with us. Many people don't want to hear the truth about what marriage is. Uh, they like to think that it's what Hollywood portrays. Just as young couples may have an aversion to hearing what they will face in their marriages, those who have been married a while sometimes seem dumbfounded as to how marriage can be a delight and a joy. Remember, God only blesses His way, not ours. Not some secular marriage therapist, not some sort of counselor, unless they are using the Word of God or some best-selling book. They have nothing to say because God has already said what needs to be said about marriage. He's already said what needs to be said about how marriage relationships are repaired. We live in a time and a place with people that are broken. The earth has not been restored. Sin is not completely eradicated. We are not yet completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But we do have some great tools to navigate this life. We have the Word of God. We have Christ, who is our perfect example, who died for us and has risen again. We have the Spirit of the living God within us. And we have the church. 
a group of people that are willing to come alongside. And we have to make full use of each of those things in order to have a God-honoring marriage. Where a wife respects her husband, and the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church. I want you to understand that ultimately I'm addressing Christian couples. So I am making the assumption that both people are believers and that they desire to seek to honor Christ in their marriage. So let's begin at the beginning. When couples first meet and begin to date and eventually begin their marriage relationship, we find that one of the most detrimental things to marriage is unrealistic expectations. When we are young, we tend to think that this woman or this man is going to meet every need and fulfill every desire that I have. That they're going to be all the pieces of the puzzle that's missing. That she or he is going to be this grand something that will bring ultimate and complete fulfillment to me. She's going to be the princess and he is going to be her prince charming. But it does not take long for you to realize that this person is really not capable of meeting all of your desires like you thought that they would be able to. And what I find in the counseling research that I have done is that the warm and fuzzies usually wear off within a couple of years. And that is around the high water mark for divorce. At that two or so year mark, a marriage is no longer coasting on butterflies and feelings. Now it becomes work. And many people are unwilling to be committed to God and to each other to make it work. Unrealistic expectations always lead to disappointment. They always will. We've all bought that product that was advertised and it's supposed to do this and make life easier. And then you get the thing out of the box when you get home and you go, this thing doesn't do anything of what it said. It actually might makes life more complicated and more difficult. I think sometimes we get married and we're expecting a slice of heaven. That's what it's supposed to be. That we're going to just live on love. What that means is we're going to live by our feelings. And that's a dangerous place to be. But both husband and wife, they are broken because of sin. We ignore the fact that we are broken and yet think our relationships will be different than those who come before. I believe another problem that we have in marriage besides unrealistic expectations is the way that we use Scripture. Sometimes we use the Bible like it's sort of an encyclopedia. If we have a problem with finances, we go to the financial section. Uh, if we have a problem with marriage, we go to the marriage section. Or whatever subject it might be current in our life that we're dealing with. But what we fail to realize is that ultimately all of Scripture really deals with relationships. Relationships with one another, relationships with God and with Christ. It is a book about how relationships are destroyed and how they are renewed. Although a lot of passages in Scripture do not directly address marriage, Every passage in Scripture tells us what we should expect as we deal with relationships that includes our marriage. When we have a problem, we want to go to the Bible and get a specific answer instead of having a steady stream of God's Word wash over our hearts and transform our minds. 
One research group reports that only 35% of those claiming to be Christians read their Bibles at least once a week. 10% read it once or twice a month. 8% read it several times a year. And 45% never read it at all. No wonder the divorce rate is the same in the church as it is outside of the church. I believe another area in which couples have a lack of understanding is that we fail to understand that our marriage is a picture of something greater. Our marriage is a picture of Christ and His bride, the church. And this is where we're going to settle in this morning and spend our time. And what I want to do is I begin to look at this this picture of Christ and His bride, Christ and the church. I want to address husbands this morning. And Lord willing, next week we will address wives. Listen men, as with the gospel, we start with the bad news before we get to the good news. There are some hard things that need to be said and done before we get to a place of joy and tenderness within our relationships. The world has shaped a Christian's understanding of how husbands and wives function in their relationships. And then when we hear the biblical standard and the roles of a husband and a wife and children, we sometimes don't like it because that doesn't work with what we had plans to do. But they are written for God's glory and for our benefit. I want you to know that I am speaking out of love this morning. My family knows the turmoil that has been inside of me over the last month or so in preparing for this. I want you to know something that I'm not preaching at you. Don't think, don't think he is talking about my specific situation. Because brothers, we all tend to suffer from the very same malady. We suffer from the same disease. I can pretty much guess that every single man in here who is married has been irritated with his wife. He has shown flashes of anger. We have all gotten down and depressed at times inside of our relationship. At other times we have gotten our focus on material things or on our jobs too much and we neglect our family. So understand that I am not preaching at you. I'm dealing with a common malady. What I am teaching you this morning are things that I had to hear and needed to learn in my own life and I still need to hear them and continue to practice them in my own life. As Paul Washer says, that's the thing with preaching, we get the idea that the guy in the pulpit's got it all together and he's just instructing everyone because he's the professional. What he says, what we need to do is I need to say a line, go down and sit into the pew and hear it for myself because I need it just as much as the rest of the congregation. So nearly all men are going through or have gone through or will go through some of the things that I will talk about this morning. God has used my children, my wife, and His Word to pierce deep into my heart and give me a glimpse of what I'm really like and what I really need. And so I'm going to be careful, but I am going to use myself as an example in these illustrations and examples so that you can know that you are not alone. Okay? 
there are people, men in this church, godly men who have been through the very same things that you need to lean on, ask help from, seek advice and counsel from. You are not going through this by yourself. And let me tell you this, you're not strong enough to always go through it by yourself. Okay? That's why God gave us each other. That's why God gave us each other. Some of these things are painful, but it is grace. Some of the things that I have learned and am still learning have broken me, but it was so He could heal me and my family. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm not going to cover every aspect of this because what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn back around and I'm going to deal with the subject of wives next week and covering some of the things that I will skip over this morning. I'd like to read verses 21 through 33. Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. And being subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church." because we are members of His body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, You will bless the reading of Your Word. And I ask, Lord, for Your help, clarity of thought and mind um, with the exposition of the Scriptures this morning. I pray for uh, the hearts of our people, Lord, as I've already prayed this week, to be receptive to Your Word. Uh, and to focus on Christ-likeness in their marriages, Lord. And we'll give you the praise and honor and glory for all that is done. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Listen, don't check out with me just because I'm talking to husbands this morning. Young ladies, you need to know what kind of man to look for. Young men, you need to know what your responsibility will be when you get married. 
As I've told older singers, you you have biblical wisdom that can be gained here. Uh, So stay with me no matter where you're at in your relationships. Listen, men, God holds us responsible for how we lead our homes, for how we lead our wives, for how we lead our children. And men, you cannot escape that you are a leader, especially if you're a husband and a father. Now, there may be the question of whether there is good leadership or poor leadership, but nonetheless, you are leading your family in a direction. And I want us to ask ourselves this question, myself included. What does your wife and your children see when they look at you? What do they see when they look at you? Wife, what does your husband see when he looks at you? Do they see a pattern of Christ-likeness, not perfection? But do they see a person who is seeking to exalt Christ? Do they hear a person who talks about Christ? Do they see a Christ-like spirit in the way that you love, in the way that you give of yourself? Is there a pattern of Christ being exalted in your life? Do they know that you are a person that wants to glorify God and spread the knowledge of Him? I know in my own life there can be this ebb and flow. We sometimes can look at ourselves, and there has been times in my life that, hey, I'm leading well. The next moment, I'm flat on my face. I'm not leading well at all. But I want you to understand, folks, both husbands and wives, that the greatest way in which the kingdom is expanded, in which the knowledge of God goes forth, in which the example of Christ is lived out to the fullest on this earth, is inside the four walls of your home. It's not what I am at church. I have been a pastor's child since the day I came home from the hospital. I can, if I so choose, to put on a mask. I can have a bad morning at home and come and say, it's good to see you, brother. I can do that. It doesn't matter that I'm a pastor or we're a deacon or we do this or that. It is what we're like in our homes. That is who we really are. I think one of the biggest stressors for families is all the stuff that vies for our attention. I cannot, young people... I cannot emphasize simplicity in your home enough. Be simple. The Bible, the the society around us wants us to have all the stuff and to accomplish all the goals and do all these things. And families are going in so many different directions and it's literally tearing them apart. There's a lot of good things that call to us. But listen, there are, there are a lot of bad things that call to us, but there's also good things that vie for our attention at times. Remember, I was a full-time pastor at one time. There is a lot of good things that you can do as a full-time pastor. But sometimes what happens is we neglect what is best for what is good. It's easy to do good for other people and then lack in focusing and doing the, the right things, the better things for our primary ministry. And our primary ministry is our wife and our children. One thing I experienced personally that pulled me away uh, from my primary ministry of my wife and children was ministry things. When I was a full-time pastor, listen, the ministry and this can be true, men, with your jobs, gave me things that I desired. 
it gave me a measure of fulfillment. I know that my job now, or maybe your job now, gives you things that you desire as a man, such as, uh, such as respect, knowing that people need you. Maybe people want to hear your counsel or your advice. You gain a sense of fulfillment, success, and satisfaction when you meet people's expectations. And it's even greater when you exceed them. But we will receive no honor from Christ if we are not leading our homes well. As an elder, I am disqualified from ministry if I neglect the needs of my wife and children. One part of God's will does not trump another part of God's will. Listen, these biographies that sometimes we have where these missionaries forsake their families for years on end to do God's work, I believe there's no reward in that. Because they have rejected their primary ministry of their children and their families, their wives. Men, our responsibility of providing for our family does not give us an excuse for not leading our home. It doesn't give us an excuse for not loving our wives as Christ loved the church or bringing up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Men, our wives are gifts from God. Our children are gifts from God. And He does not give us those gifts so that they might be neglected for other things that we want to pursue. They are given to us as gifts so that we might help them flourish. That we might help them grow. Listen, you know this, that as Christians, our world is not divided. There is no such thing as the secular and the sacred. There is only the sacred. Your job, your leisure, your wife, your friends, your acquaintances, your children, your job, all of those fall under sacred things. Everything in your life is sacred. When I was a full-time pastor, I tended to think that ministry, that's sacred. That's the high calling. And then my family got what was left over. And they just needed to suffer for Jesus while I went out and tried to save the world. That's fine if I'm a single man. But if God in His providence has brought a wife into my life and then brought kids into my life, or wives, if you have been given a husband and children, that is a sacred calling. And that is your primary ministry. If we are to be men and women of God, then we must seek that every aspect of our lives are lived for the glory of God. What we do in this life is bound by what the Word of God says. And we have no right to say that some of God's commands are more important than other commands. God doesn't give us a pass on those things. What you do when you are in your home is some of the greatest ministry work that can ever be done. What I'm trying to say is that we don't get to neglect one aspect of God's will to do another aspect of God's will. So when my family looks me in the eye, when your husband or your wife or your kids look you in the eye, do they see a person that is devoted to the truth of Scripture? They are devoted to seeking to be the right kind of husband, the right kind of wife, to be the right kind of father and mother. Or do they see a person that is so occupied with the things of the world, with making money, having nice stuff, with ministry, with leisure? Or do they see Christ in you? If they don't, guess what needs to take place? Repentance. 
repentance. We need to repent of sin, of neglecting God's commands for our home. We need to repent of neglecting the God-given responsibility of fathers and mothers to teach their children the Scriptures. We need to take seriously what the Word of God says. I get it. I understand. I understand how easy it is to be pulled away by the things of this world. To get caught up in what our society says we should have or what we should be. But it does not make it any less wrong. And what we need to do is we need to be willing to put parts of our life on the execution block. Some of it may be very hard to do. It may take a radical lifestyle change in the way that you spend and make money. It may take you giving up a career. It may take you getting a job that pays less so you can be home more. Because what is at stake is honoring Christ, glorifying God, and being conformed to the image of Christ in our homes. Now I think what is helpful here that we need to understand is concentric circles of responsibilities. And they move out in priority. And the first and foremost, as I have emphasized, is my relationship with God. Listen, what the church needs now is not more eloquent pastors or more books or more deep theological and philosophically minded people. What our society and our churches, our homes need is godly men and women that are saturated with Scripture. My family's greatest need is for there to be a godly husband and father in that home. Listen, I cannot take anybody in my home or this church any farther than I have been in my spiritual maturity and growth. My kids are not going to walk out of my home at a greater level of maturity than their father is. So my main priority in my life is my personal growth and development in my relationship with God. I must spend time in His Word. I have to spend time in prayer and I should desire to do that because I cannot give out of what I do not have. Next in this concentric circle of responsibility is my wife. My wife, if you are married men, your wife is your greatest ministry. For you ladies, your primary ministry, besides your personal growth and maturity in Christ, is your husband. Listen. Husbands and wives, you are not one flesh with the church. You are not one flesh with your children. You are not one flesh with your job, your career. You are only one flesh with one person. God meant this to be a deep, lifelong relationship. The greatest ministry in our lives are to be to our spouses. And we will see this as we go through this study together. Next in the concentric circles of responsibility are my children. The Bible tells us that children are a gift from God. But they are not meant to be your primary ministry on this earth. And we will talk a little bit more about this. And that our society either wants to murder its children through abortion, or we want to worship our children. If a person loves their children more than they love their spouse, then that is just simply unbiblical. The wife could be suffering because she's not getting the love and affection from her husband. And then she unbiblically looks to the children for that love. And that's a weight that her children cannot bear. 
Or it could be the other extreme where a couple has children and then they pretty much neglect those children for the things of the world. Listen, men, when the head of the home is out of step, it affects everyone else. The wife suffer, the kids suffer, the next generation suffers. Men, it is so easy when we see the daunting task of leadership within our homes, it's really easy to become passive. We can be like Adam standing next to Eve in the garden when Satan is tempting her. She is deceived and then she hands the fruit to Adam and the Scriptures indicate who was with her. Indicates that he's right there the whole time and he does and says nothing. Man, it's easy to be passive. What your family really wants deep in their heart is not more stuff. Is not a better life than you had when you were younger. What they want is you engaged in that home. Now they may, may not know that, but what they need is for you to invest in them. And listen, as I've said, God's way is best. God's way brings blessings. It brings joy to our home. Our way will always, will always lead to sin, death, destruction, misery, depression, you name it and keep listing it. It leads to us destroying our families. It leads to divorce. Now maybe both husband and wife don't have the same goal to glorify Christ. And so it may not be the blessing of a joyful marriage that you have. It may not be the blessing of godly offspring. But nonetheless, God blesses in the sense that you are becoming more like Christ even if your husband or your wife doesn't want to follow Christ as they should. Even if your children reject what you have taught them. God is still doing a work in you to reflect the glory of God to those around you. And it may, in turn, affect those relationships. So how can we reflect God's glory? How are we being conformed to the image of Christ inside our marriage relationships? Let's look at verses 21 and 22 of Ephesians 5. So now I get to the message. So now you know why I needed a little more time. 21 and 22 of Ephesians 5. And being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, and we will deal with that a little bit more next week, that does not mean mutual submission inside the marriage relationship. It's talking more of the church, because if it's mutual submission inside the relationship, then verse 22 is unnecessary. Okay, does that make sense? All right. Wives, verse 22, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. We are being told what conformity to Christ looks like in the home. We are being told here by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul how our relationships work. And it starts out by telling us that Christians are to be subject to one another. Then it tells us that wives are to be subject to their husbands. In chapter 6, it tells us that children are to obey their parents. It tells about slaves submitting to masters. And in our case, that would be employees submitting to employers. In Romans 13, we're told to submit to the government. So there is a way in which we are to act within our society and within our relationships. So men, let's stand up and be men. Let's begin in verse 33. Uh, it, 
we're told that the marriage relationship is a picture of Christ and the church. So the marriage relationship is to mirror this relationship between Christ and the church. It is a visible manifestation of God's work in our hearts, making us more like Christ. Here it tells us that the wife is to submit to the husband. And so men, this is directed to you. What does that mean? Because we need to understand this because the way a lot of this has been taught has been unbiblical. The opposite of what Christ has instructed us. So what does it mean? What type of authority do you have in your home? We want to make sure that we have biblical authority in our home, not a worldly authority. Now men, in a real sense, you do have authority in your home. It says in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife. But what is this authority like in Scripture? Turn to Matthew chapter 20 for a moment, please. Matthew 20. And I want to show you what Jesus meant by authority. Matthew 20. Look at verses 25 through 28. Starting in verse 25 of Matthew 20, But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise, exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. How did the Gentiles rule? They ruled by stepping on people to gain more and more power. That's not biblical leadership. Jesus rebukes that type of leadership. A husband's authority, men listen, a husband's authority in the home is accomplished by serving. His authority in the home is accomplished by serving. You have Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who takes a towel and washes dirty feet. Husbands, we are only granted authority to serve inside the will of God. Listen, this authority that you have been given is not for the suppression of your wife and your children, but for their flourishing. The Bible knows nothing of legalistic domination. When we do that, we suppress and frustrate our wives and our children. They are not able to flourish and bloom to their full potential. The reason this happens is because the leader of the home is all about himself and he knows nothing of serving others. I want you to understand that you're not granted authority so that your wife and your children just becomes extensions of you and what you want. You are granted authority to lead them and love them so that they might become more like Christ. That actually means becoming a servant in your home. Men, this is dying to self. Listen, this is hard for a man because we are men. Oh, we got it all together. We don't need any help. But we have to do some painful things looking at ourselves, dying to self. Maybe we need to die to our hobbies. Maybe we need to die to our buddies from school.
This can be hard. Growth in Christ can be painful and difficult because you're dying to self. You have to humble yourself. But on the other side of that, man, there is healing. There is growth. There is joy in the home. Marriage gives both the wife and the husband the occasion to become more and more like Christ. We submit to one another as Christians. Wives submit to their husbands, not because of some sort of demand by the husband, but because ultimately she wants to please Christ. She wants to honor Christ in her marriage. And since marriage is a picture, what does the church, the bride, do? It is a picture of the church submitting to Christ. And that submission takes place in a relationship of love that comes from the husband. He shows his love by serving, and then the aspect of submitting is not an issue. Because that wife then knows that this man has my best interest in mind when it comes to whatever issue it is. She can trust him with her heart. Her submissive spirit is not out of compulsion. It is not because it's demanded. It is done because of the relationship that is there. What has our Savior done for His church? He has loved. He has laid down His life. He has sacrificed. And because we know He loves us, He loved us first. Because we know He has our best interest in mind, He wants to take us to heaven and make us more like Himself. We therefore submit to Him. We'll explain a little bit more in depth about what that means, Lord willing, next week. But as husbands, we should be demonstrating the love of Christ to our wives. We should be a tool that is used by God to help transform our wives and our children. But what many have done is they use these verses and they have taken them in some dominating, legalistic way and they beat their wives and their kids into subjection. They make the wife into a second-class citizen. When you do this, you actually destroy the Trinity, is what you do. Because there are different roles within the Trinity, is there not? Yet they are equal, are they not? The husband and wife have different roles, but are equal. When you say they must have the same role, you obliterate the Trinity. Does that make sense? We destroy the Trinity in doing that. So we don't make the wife a second-class citizen. All the while completely ignoring the command to love our wives as Christ loves the church. We love that one verse, but then we get to the other one. Sort of read over that one real quick. Woman needs to submit. I need love. And then we just move on. Doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't give us a pass. He knows our hearts. Listen, one day all of us husbands are going to stand before Christ for how we have led our families and loved and treated our wives. It doesn't matter how much we think of ourselves and our authority. If we mistreat God's daughter, the woman that has been given to us, who also has an elder brother who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, it will not result in a good thing at all. The Bible tells us that the husband... His prayers are hindered by the way that we treat our wives. This makes me fearful because there have been many times I have not treated God's daughter as I should. And I am absolutely ashamed of the times that I have hurt her heart and in turn hurt my Heavenly Father's heart. That requires repentance. 
So men, we reflect Christ by the way we live out the authority that is given to us by God, which is authority to serve. We also reflect Christ and are becoming more like Christ when we love like He loves. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. We really want to focus on the verse before. But when we read this and we understand what this is saying, we should be broken over this. It is so easy to look at someone else and see what they're doing instead of taking a long, hard look at what God expects of us and to see how far short we fall from that standard. This is a high calling. Let's just reflect on this for a moment. What was the church like when Christ gave Himself for her? Was the church flawless? Beautiful, unstained picture of perfection? Absolutely not. Christ died for people who were rebels, who wanted to crucify Him and did. He died for those that hated Him. One thing that we need to realize is that our spouses do not come ready-made. We seem to have this Messiah complex for our spouses when we get married. That they're going to come in and fulfill all the wants and desires. But we forget that we're dealing with a flawed and broken human being just like ourselves. I've heard the reasoning from both sides that if my husband would love me and pay attention to me, then I would be more more submissive and respectful. I've heard husbands say, if she would just respect me and be submissive to me, then I would give her more love and affection. But is that what Christ did? The ones that Christ died for, His bride was crying for His death. Christ died for His bride. What does it tell us in Romans 8, 28 and 29? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. The goal of God for us as Christians is to be conformed to the image of Christ. God in His sovereignty, in His work through providence, has orchestrated all events, negative and positive, in your life. He is doing those things to conform you to the image of Christ. So let's take this and apply this to our marriages. That means that the primary purpose of marriage is not to give you a little piece of heaven here on earth. It can. It really can. But that's not the main purpose of it. That means that our marriages ultimately is for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. This is so important to grasp. And I understand, especially young couples don't want to hear that a marriage is really where their greatest growth in Christ-likeness takes place. Our thinking when we are dating is... I want to find someone that's compatible with me. I want you to understand that men and women are so inherently different at the core that this compatibility in relationship is simply not a reality. Okay, it's not a reality. God in His providence is not necessarily seeking to give you someone that matches you completely, but what He does want to do is do a work of sanctification in both of your lives. I actually find that God does not stick people that are compatible together. At first we think so. 
I know that with me and Amanda, that's what we thought. Similar backgrounds, similar upraising. Her hometown was my dad's hometown. It just all fit together. But it doesn't take long to realize that we think differently about a lot of things. Stop and imagine something with me. Imagine that you do have the perfect spouse. You've found the perfect man or the perfect woman. How does that make you more like Christ? Man, if you found the perfect woman, you would then look like the perfect husband. But what would Jesus see? He would see a corrupt heart, a whitewashed tomb. Because the only reason that you look the way you do as this perfect husband is because this woman meets every single one of your needs and desires. Not because you're really a good husband. Not because you're becoming more like Christ. I believe that God in His grace gives us spouses who are strong in the areas where we may struggle. But God may very well also give us spouses that are not compatible with us. This doesn't mean there needs to be a divorce because we're not compatible. This does not mean that we need to separate because we seem so different. What this is a call to is Christ-likeness. Paul Washer said this, and I want to quote him because I want to blame it on him, but I want to say it. So that way you can't say I said it. Paul Washer said this, God may very well give you a spouse that will fail you in the very areas that you most desired in a spouse. Why would God do that? Let me follow that by asking another question. What does it mean to be like Jesus? When we think of Jesus, what pops into our heads? Is it thoughts of justice and wrath? No, it's His mercy, His grace, His unconditional love, His tenderness, His kindness. So how are we going to learn unconditional love if we have a spouse that meets every one of our desires? How are we going to learn mercy if our spouse never fails us? How do you learn grace if your spouse deserves everything and more that you give them? Listen, the reason that we struggle many times in our relationships and we struggle with being down and depressed or unsatisfied is we simply don't want what God wants. You know how I know that? Because there was a time I was depressed. And you know why I was depressed? The reason was God was not cooperating with my plans for my life. And I was terribly upset over that. He had other plans. We want an easy life. We want a perfect spouse. We want everything to work out all right. We don't want any struggles. We want heaven here and heaven to come. But God wants to do something greater. He wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ. If we miss this, if we miss this, we miss the overarching purpose of marriage and we will be miserable within that relationship. And what people do is they marry and they find out that they're not compatible or that this person can't meet some of my most important desires and we believe we've made a mistake. But listen, my friends, to think those thoughts reveal that Christ is not central in your life. That becoming like Christ is not your priority. I want to ask you something. What is the opposite of black? Go ahead, you can say it. What's the opposite of up? What's the opposite of a woman? A man. They're opposites. 
They're not compatible. Women see the world entirely different through a different lens. Do you want to know how bad this is? My wife and I cannot agree on the color of a cup in our cabinet. Okay? And we've had multiple long discussions within we get all sorts of evidence on our side for these cups. It is a blue cup with green in it. But my wife thinks it's a green cup with blue in it. I know the things I have to live with. She has literally taken the cup around and compared it to other green things in the house to bolster her position. I have proven my point by scientific research on the internet. Just yesterday we disagreed on the color of our chairs that we've had for three years now. I think they're blue, she thinks they're black. My main point in this illustration is to tell you that the cup is blue with a little green in it. But my secondary point is that if husbands and wives can disagree on the color of a cup, that shows there are going to be other areas, even more weighty areas, that we may not end up seeing eye to eye on. Listen, what we should do is we should look at our spouses and see all the ways we are compatible and thank God for those things. And you can also take a look at all the ways in which you do not fit where you do not see eye to eye and realize it's not a fluke. It's not a mistake. Because all those things have been ordained and orchestrated by God. God brought you to a person that may lack in the very areas that you desire most. God may have brought to you a person that rubs you in the wrong way in certain things that you really want to be different. And God has done this so that you might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So the question I'm asking you, what do you want? Do you want what God's want? What He wants? Is your and my desire to be like Christ? I'm not saying just mere words on your tongue. Yes, I want to be like Christ. But is that your deepest desire to be like Christ? If not... Your marriage will be a difficult relationship and you will be pierced through with many sorrows. Look at verses 25 and 26 in Ephesians 5. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Husbands, we have been given the ministry of loving our wives as Christ loved the church. We are to sacrifice for her, willing to lay down our life for her. But husbands, we do this so that she might be sanctified. Wives, I want you to understand that your husband's love is not for the primary purpose. It has a different primary purpose than giving you all of your heart's desires. But to give you what Christ wants you to have. Christ laid down His life for the church so that He might sanctify her. A man serves his wife and his children for the purpose of sanctification. The goal is not the spoiling of your wife, but the sanctifying of her, that she might grow in Christ. Look down in verse 29 there. It says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. 
Husbands, we are to nourish our wife on the Word. Paul told Timothy to do this. Be nourished on the Word and sound doctrine. So husbands, one of the principal means of your wife's growth in Christ is your ministry of the Word to her. Now this doesn't mean that you sit down and give her an hour-long lecture on theology each day. Nor does it mean repeated preaching on verse 22 to be subject to your husband's. But it is setting down as a husband and a father with your wife, kids, and mutually feeding on the Word. In that there is mutual benefit. Not just them receiving things from the husband, the father, but me receiving things from them. But you say you're a pastor. You teach Bible classes at the Christian school. Listen, I have learned more from my wife about Christ-likeness than she has learned from me about theology. I have benefited from my children as well. I have been encouraged by them, and I have also been rebuked by my children, which was needed and appropriate at the time. Men, are we nourishing our families on the Word? Look at verse 27 that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ desires to have a beautiful, spotless, perfect, unblemished bride that is pleasing to Him in every way. So what does He do for her? He dies for her. He then calls her to Himself. And He spends many years, 2,000 or so now, patiently cleansing her, teaching her, working with her, loving her. I don't know your home, but I know how mine was. I would be seeking to meet an entire church's expectations for their pastor, which is absolutely impossible. But I made the effort seven days a week doing that. And in so doing, I came home with nothing left to give my family. I was very impatient, and sometimes I was just downright ugly. One particular day in my ministry, this stuck in my mind. I had been sucked of all energy and emotions. I was angry that I was expected to meet over a hundred people's needs and desires. I came home. My two little girls had been playing at the kitchen table. And they had their toys all on the floor. My solution to the problem was to sweep them all up and throw them away. And I can still remember two very small little girls with tears in their eyes trying to clean up their toys before their dad threw them all in the garbage. I can't imagine what my family probably thought when they saw me coming home in those days. Because there was a number of days I came home grumpy, impatient, irritated, and even angry. My heart breaks now at the thought of those things. I've had to repent of those things. Years later, this came into my mind. God brought this into my mind, this incident with my daughters. And I had to go back in tears and ask for their forgiveness. I've had to ask for my wife's forgiveness many times. One thing that I failed to see back then was how Christ was so patient with me. Not just once or twice, but the hundreds of thousands of times He has patiently and lovingly worked with me. me. But I was not patiently working with my family. 
Christ is patiently working to give Himself a perfect bride. And we should be patiently working with ours. How much time have we invested in our wives? We make too many things in this life idols and we neglect our primary ministries in our home. I mentioned earlier about the things that vie for our attention. We can let entertainment, hobbies, work all become things that pull us away from our primary ministry of our family. We can make excuses such as, I need the downtime, or I'm working hard to provide for my family. Some of us may need to work less and be home more. Wives, some of you may need to work less and be home more. You don't have to have all that the world says that you have to have. God will provide your needs. Now, you can't just quit work. But we don't have to have the driving force to go after it like some of us may have. When you get to your deathbed, you will not wish that you would have worked longer weeks or that you had a successful career or that you watched all those football games or that you have a nice car or a nice house. You will not get to your deathbed and you will look. What you're going to do is look at what you truly have invested. What is going to last? The house is going to burn. The kids are a legacy. The wife is a legacy. You pour into them and they pour into others and it keeps going. Did we leave a legacy of Christ and godliness? We tend to think think that things don't change, that they remain the same. But you turn around just as I did with those little kids who were once 2 and 4 and now are nearly 15 and 17 years old. Listen, husbands, wives, you will never regret spending time with your spouse and with your children. But if you do, you will have a truckload of regrets at the end of your life. If you poured your life into work, buddies, and football. And I say football because I like football. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to hit golf. Which everybody knows. (laughs) Well, I guess I actually did hit golf. When I was working seven days a week as a pastor, I had a very patient, loving, and respectful woman, which was my wife, that told me this a number of times about my deathbed. But I made excuses to her. I have to prepare four messages, four messages a week, plus a Bible study. I'm the chaplain for the North Carolina State Troopers. I work with the Durham Rescue Mission. People need counsel. What about the people that are sick? And those things do have a place, but not to the neglect of my family. My wife asked me, who are the people that are going to be around you when you are taking your last breath? It won't be those guys on the television screen that I watch playing football. It won't be those buddies on the golf course. It's most likely going to be the people that... It's not going to be the people that you even counseled or people that you visited or those guys at work or those clients that were so important at the time. It's going to be your family... I struggled in my last ministry to balance my home and the workload at the church. And I got to the point where I realized I was losing my family. I was losing my wife. I was hurting my kids. And I resigned. I resigned without a place to live or another job or anywhere to go. 
I knew it had to stop. And I sat down with my wife before I said I would become an elder here at Providence. And I promised her that if me working full-time at the Christian school and being a part-time elder becomes too much, I would resign as an elder of Providence. I made that promise to her. I love this church. It is a joy to be an elder, especially with the two other godly men that we have. It is a joy. But if this ministry becomes so much that it interferes with my primary ministry of my wife and kids, it has to go. I do understand that life can be busy. I do understand that there are going to be times that are busier than others. This last month is extremely busy for me because we're ending the school year and then I'm getting ready to start a sermon series. And so there's going to be busy times in life, but if you're always busy to the neglect of your home, then you're far too busy just like I was. You think too much of yourself. I'm not as needed as I think I am. If I did resign here, you know what? You've got two other godly men to lead this fellowship. The work will go on without Jonathan Hamilton. Because it's God's work. It's not Jonathan's work. Now don't go to the other side of that and say that I don't have to be involved in church at all. For you're given a gift for the purpose of others in the church and you should exercise those gifts. This doesn't mean that we don't help people when we have the opportunity. It doesn't mean that we don't counsel people at times. It doesn't mean you withdraw and rarely reach out to anyone. But if you are constantly neglecting your family, then that is a serious issue. I can look back now and see that those difficult times that brought brokenness, they were good for me. God many times brings brokenness so He can bring healing and joy. As Harry said last week, and I sit back there with tears in my eyes, some of us bear the scars of God's discipline. I have a daily reminder of my sin and God's discipline in my life. It wasn't a nudge. It wasn't a word from the Lord through the Scripture reading or a pastor. As my dad said, I had, in order to get it through my stubborn head, go to the divine woodshed. But now, I can say what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 67 and 68. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep Your Word. You are good and do good. It is good to be broken. It is good to be exposed by the truth. That is grace. That is grace. When we repent of our sins and we focus on Christ's likeness, our relationship can heal and it can become a wonderful, beautiful, and joyful thing. God has healed many wounds that I inflicted to my wife and kids. Men, what are we investing in? Maybe one reason some of us don't invest is we don't have anything within us to invest into our children and wives. And the reason that would be is the neglect of the Word in our own personal lives. The neglect of prayer, the neglect of being with God's people. So there's actually very little to give. Men, we cannot take a person any farther than we have gone ourselves. You are limited in how much you can help a person grow by your own growth. Men, for us to teach the Word to our wives and our children, we have to know more than they do about what the Word says. And that requires time in God's Word and in prayer. And listen, don't walk out of here saying that we all fall short and use that as an excuse. 
in the way that we lead our homes. That excuse will not hold up before Christ. Nor are we to go to the other side and be in despair and saying it's hopeless. It's been said many times that the measure of a man is not in how many times he falls, but in how many times he gets back up. I have with tears in my eyes sat at my kitchen table and confessed my sins to my family. And I keep working. And I keep getting up. And by God's grace, I'm more like Christ than I was. I'm not as much like Him as I wish I was. But we're moving in the right direction. Men, are we being honest? Or are we still making excuses? Do we hide our sins and play them off as she's a nagging wife? Or my kids just won't listen? Do we wallow in despair or put more of our self into our work so we don't have to deal with what's going on at home? That's a man that's not getting up. Look at verse 28 and 29. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Paul Washer makes a point here. He says that people will point to this verse and say that the Scriptures are not inspired. Because there are people out there that do hate their own flesh. They will cut and mutilate themselves. But he says, what do we call them? We call them insane. A person who tries to tear their own arm off, we would call that person insane. So the Apostle Paul here is not making a universal statement. What he's saying is that no one in their right mind that's reasoning properly is going to try to tear their own arm off. Do you know, men, that it is insanity. It is insanity to attack your wife. It is insane to do things to spite her or to hurt her. If you want to bring the roof down on your family and you want to be miserable, treat your wife like she's a second-class citizen. Talk down to her. Be short with her. If anyone ever had a right to spite their bride, it was Christ. But He didn't. And we should not spite ours either. In verse 29, what does Paul say here? He says that a man nourishes and cherishes his own flesh. Look down at Ephesians 6 and verse 4. It says there to fathers, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Those words, bring them up, is what we have here in verse 29, which is to nourish. We nourish them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord's. Husbands, we make a common mistake that our brides come ready-made. We affirm God's sovereignty, His absolute rule of the universe. We affirm believers are in God's providence that He foreordains all events. And God has ordained that the wife grow in sanctification, not wholly, but at least in part, by her own husband. This is obviously not some sort of bully that is preaching about submit, submit, submit. This is nourishing. This is a man full of love who tenderly builds up, not tears down. And this is done as he ministers to his wife and kids the Word. You also have this word cherish, which means warmth. It has the idea of cuddling. It is a picture of a mother tenderly caring for her child. The picture of warmth And this tender care that a mother would have for her newborn is the type of care, of cherishing, that the husband is to have for his wife. 
It is a warm, tender, loving, and gracious care. As I said earlier, I had forgotten that I had been given these incredible gifts from God. But God also in His grace worked through circumstances, His Word and the tender love of my wife to open my eyes to what I was and what I had. I think part of my problem was commonality. When you first meet that young lady, you go so far out of your way to woo her. You give her gifts, you spend time with her, you hang on to every word, you pay attention to the little details and uh, all the needs that she has. And then we get married and I've conquered. I've taken the, the property, the land. We've accomplished the task. And so we move on to other things that we want to accomplish, whether it's work or hobbies or something else. And we live day after day with this incredible, precious gift that our Heavenly Father has given us. And we neglect it. Man, if you are neglecting your wife, I ask you to do what I had to do, and that's repent. I believe when we get serious about our responsibilities as husbands and fathers, I believe God gives you fresh eyes to see the incredible grace that He has given you in that woman and in those kids. But the thing is, because of this commonality, we treat her one way at the beginning of the relationship, and we treat her differently as the relationship progresses. We shouldn't lose that man. We should never stop holding the door for our wives, being attentive to her needs, listening listening patiently to her, to what she has to say. Listen to her feelings. Everywhere we went when we were dating, I would open the door for Amanda. But then I got to the point in our marriage relationship where if she was running behind, I blew the horn. That only happened once or twice because I almost died. Listen, man, our country is characterized by two main things. Sexual perversion and violence. It doesn't understand beauty and it doesn't understand tenderness. And it pushes you to think wrongly about being a man. Listen to me, man. Lingering at the cheerleader on the screen hurts your wife even if she never sees it. And it hurts you. The thing that you might look at that nobody else knows destroys beauty, destroys love, it destroys relationship. The pornographic industry, men, is satanic. It's satanic. That's what you're involved in. It's satanic stuff. But also, our society pushes men to be violent. Maybe not in the sense that you go around punching your wife, but we can very easily verbally and emotionally abuse them, which in the long term can be more harmful and more scarring than even physical violence. Listen, those first days when you're dating, when you're very tender and attentive, you were even more tender and careful when her father was around. I still vividly can remember the first time I met Terry Robbins. Now, Terry Robbins come up to about right here on me. But I was still nervous and intimidated by that man. But as I said earlier, her Heavenly Father is always present. Her older brother, Jesus Christ, is always watching. Men, your wife's father and brother are watching. I've had to live a long time in my marriage relationship before I actually had this thought introduced to me that I have God's daughter. The God of the universe gave me His daughter. The King 
his sister was given to me. And he's watching what I do with these precious gifts. My first reaction was fear. The second reaction was brokenness and repentance. Husbands, we should fear. And we should be broken over the way we have treated God's daughter, Christ's sister. We should be broken. We should repent. But we should not be so broken that we fall into despair. Because what we have to do with this moment is we get back up and we act like men. Not what the world thinks a man is, but what God says a man is to be. Look at verse 31. I promise I'm almost done because I'm about out of strength. So it's going to have to end. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Do you know the best thing that I can do for my children? The best thing I can do for my children is to love my wife more than anyone else on this planet. My children see that and they know they're secure in that relationship. This here is important for us to understand as well that we really undo what we're trying to do with our children and we undermine what needs need to be done for them, what needs need to be met for them when they do not see mom and dad loving each other more than they love those kids. Listen fathers, you are not a good father if you are not a good husband. Mothers, you are not a good mother if you are not a good wife. Listen, my son learns and your sons learn how to be a husband and a father by how you and I are husbands and fathers. Mothers, your daughters learn how to be wives and mothers by looking at how you are a wife and mother. Also, my two daughters find a standard in me. And so when they're looking for a man to spend the rest of their life with, they're looking based on what they understand a husband and a father to be. And that comes from the person that they have lived with all this time, their father. If my daughters see me as callous, angry, spiteful, a man lacking tenderness, then when some jerk comes along, they will think that that's what men are like. They need to know that there are godly men out there And they get that from their father. Verse 32 and 33. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now I want you to understand something here. We do have to be careful. The text of Scripture tells us that the husband is to love the wife. It doesn't say that the wife is to love the husband. It says that the wife must respect her husband. It doesn't say that the husband should respect his wife. Obviously, a husband should respect their wife, and a wife should respect should love their husband. And just thinking through this, I think there's a reason for this. I think these are the things that are needed most from the other spouse in the relationship. For me, I don't need my wife calling me throughout the day telling me that she loves me. I don't need her to send me cards and flowers. But if she does not respect me, that is devastating. On the other hand, my wife is not looking so much for respect as she is the nourishing, the tenderness, the cherishing, the little acts of love. She needs to hear I love you over and over again. Not I said it in the wedding vows and I meant it then and I'm still here so I still mean it. Every day she needs to be affirmed and loved 
Love needs to be demonstrated to her. She needs to know that she's still pretty to you. She needs to know that you want to be with her as a person, that you delight in her. And you might say, I'm just not that kind of man. Well, then we need to repent of our sins and be more like Jesus. This morning I have given you a lot to think about and to pray about. Maybe a lot of confession and repentance is needed, just as I had to do in my marriage and continue to do. But doing these things God's way can bring healing and joy as God has done in my relationship. You can have a wonderful marriage, but we may have to do some difficult things to get there. But, my friends, it's well worth it. We may have to humble ourselves and ask for some help. We may have to humble ourselves before our wives and our children and repent. And we may and we must and we must completely give ourselves to the work of God to make us more like Christ. I do want to say one more thing before we close. If you're single because of divorce or you feel like you've blown it in some way, God still blesses people that seek to honor Him. Even if things have fallen apart in your past and you have scars, you may not get the relation back. You may be in another marriage altogether, but you put your whole self into that and God will bless. It may not be the way you think that He will, but He will bless that. He blesses obedience. By you living a life that seeks to be conformed to Christ, people see the example that you're living. You are also then qualified with wisdom and advice to those who may face similar things in their life. So I don't want anyone to walk out of here thinking that my marriage is such a mess that God can't repair it. Nor that if there are mistakes in the past, and what has happened to you may not be of your own fault, but God still uses people that seek to obey and honor Him with their life. He will bless that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your truth. And I ask, Lord, that it would penetrate deeply into each of our hearts that we might look to our Savior, look to the Word, and become more and more like Christ. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.